Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't got to meet yet, I look forward to hopefully doing that uh, very soon. Uh, it's good to be with you, and it's good for us to gather together, uh, particularly during this season, but at all times, to draw one another's hearts back to what's true uh, because of all Jesus has done for us. And so welcome into that endeavor. If this is new for you, uh, we're glad to have you with us. If you want to grab your Bibles, if you have one, and open to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew back in front of you, and uh, you can grab that and follow along there. If you open up to the center, you're probably going to be really close to where Isaiah 9 is. You can kind of move back and forth from there. Um, and if you don't have a copy of the Bible, if you don't uh, have your own hard copy, if you only have it online or you don't have one at all, we're glad for you to take that one home with you. It's Christmas. That's your gift. You can have that and take it home. We'll be glad to replace that this week. But we really want everybody to have a copy of the Word. And so if you didn't coming in, hopefully you will as you leave. And so we'd love for you to uh, have that as you journey with Jesus. So um, we've been in this Advent series, kind of walking through the Advent themes. Uh, we began a few weeks ago with the idea of love, that uh, Jesus comes in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of the mess. He doesn't come to point the way out. He doesn't come telling us how we can meet him somewhere outside of the mess, but in love for us, he shows up in the middle of our mess, in the middle of the brokenness, and loves us there. His primary goal when he comes in is not to fix it. His primary goal is to be with you, to be with me. He wants to be with us. He loves us where we are. And so we began with that kind of foundation. And then last week, we looked at the idea of hope, that uh, we're called to be people who hope not for something, not for the fact that he'll get us out of the mess uh, or put hope in the fact that he's able to get us out of the mess, but we hope in him, in him alone. And so we line our hearts up with him and we pursue him as he leads us. And our goal in hope is to have hope in him, not for some outcome. And so today, we're going to take the next step to look at the idea of peace. What it means to be people of peace, what it means to uh, live as, uh, as conduits of peace into the world around us. And so to do that, I want us to just think back over the last couple years, I know that's a little traumatic, so just take a deep breath, it's going to be okay. Um, but believe it or not, a year ago this weekend was the last weekend that we were meeting as a church in what is now the Student Ministry Center down below. We weren't even yet back in the sanctuary. It seems like we've been here for a long time, but it's not even been a year. Um, over the course of the last several years, a lot of crazy stuff has happened, right? Like it's been wild. And, and what's happened more than anything is that what was underneath the surface, uh, what most sociologists would say has been underneath the surface for generations, was exposed. It wasn't so much that new things happened. It was just that the, the stress on the system brought all that stuff that was there out. So whether it was social divides, whether it was political divides, whether it was ideological divides, they all kind of emerged. Uh, whether it was the, the sense of prosperity and safety that was uh, thinly veiled and kind of delicately balanced, being kind of pushed over to the side, that was all, that was all already there. It just emerged, it was seen in a, in a different way over the last couple of years. Edwin Freeman, back in 1997, so uh, picture that, in 1997, wrote a book called A Failure of Nerve. It's uh, probably the best leadership book I've ever written. And he makes the case that all that we saw in the last couple years, uh, obviously he couldn't have known all of that, but all that has happened in the last couple years is, uh, is the result of what he called a chronically anxious society, that we live in a chronically anxious society where we are uh, we're constantly feeling this sense of anxiety that is uh, too much weight on our shoulders, too much uh, of, of all of the stuff that uh, is going on in the world around us lands on us. The way Friedman des describes it is in a kind of a cycle. He said there's five different characteristics that kind of flow in cycles. So I'm going to throw them on the screen for you. You can kind of uh, see how this resonates with your experience of the last couple years. Uh, he said that there's, uh, the beginning is a reactivity. And, and by reactivity, uh, Friedman has a great phrase. He says, we are people who are full of panic in search of a trigger. Is that a great phrase? Panic in search of a trigger. We're just kind of waiting for something to explode. We, we have a self-centered focus, so much so that we believe what we believe about anything is really, really important. 
And so therefore, we have to get it out as quickly as possible. Um, and social media, of course, provides a great uh, venue for us to say all the stuff that's so important because we think it, right? And so that's that idea of reactivity, and that leads into what he calls herding, or what the columnist David Brooks calls a new tribalism. And basically, we, we start to affiliate and connect with people who disagree with the same people we disagree with. Or that's said a little bit nicely, um, that hates the same people that we hate, right? That's, those are the people we connect with. And so what happens is we start to lump together, not based on an overall worldview, but based on our more, most extreme views, and those become the people that we, we lump together with. Hurting then leads to what he calls blame displacement. So when you hear people talk about what's wrong with the world, it's very rarely I statements, Right? It's not like, I know this is my problem, never that. It's always you, it's always them, those people, right? And that, that idea of blame displacement, that I couldn't possibly be what's wrong with the world. Instead, the rest of the world around me is what's wrong. And that leads to a quick fix mentality, that we would, as quickly as possible, get out of this. I like to think of it as take a pill or pass a bill, right? Like, let's, let's either make a law or take a pill, let's figure out a way to get out of this mess as quickly as we possibly can. And that then, leads into a, uh, an elevation of what Friedman calls uh, non-well-differentiated leaders or a lack of well-differentiated leaders. Now, that's kind of technical language, but let me kind of explain it because I think this is really the foundation piece for what Friedman's saying. Basically, what happens is leaders who are not well-differentiated don't have principles or vision that drives their decision, but rather they're making decisions based on what's happening in the moment all the time. So there's a, kind of a swerving back and forth as they try to figure out how to best navigate the current situation rather than having a clear sense of, of calling and a clear sense of direction. That lack of well-differentiated leadership leads back into reactivity, into more hurting, more blame displacement, etc. That cycle, written about in 1997, is maybe the most apt description of the last two years that I've read. This is the world that we live in. This is the world that we're struggling to make sense of. Mark Sayers, who is an Australian pastor and social commentator, wrote a book about 25 years after Friedman's work, uh, kind of looking at our current context through the lens of what Friedman uh, wrote, called A Non-Anxious Presence. And I want you to see uh, the way that Sayers says it. I think it's really helpful. Humans create institutions to pass on wisdom, to collectively conquer challenges, to centralize critical knowledge. It is an accepted fact among political scientists that well-functioning and healthy institutions are the bedrock of peaceful and prosperous societies. Now, let's go back to that. Uh, let's pause at that one for a minute. What, what he's saying is that where there are institutions and where those institutions are healthy and strong, Anxiety is dispersed across that institution rather than the individual. So an example would be a really strong healthcare system means that you may not want to get sick, but you don't have anxiety about sickness because you know that there's a strong healthcare system. Uh, the same thing with a strong education system or law enforcement or a political structure. All of those things, when they're known and strong, give us a sense of confidence. That's all that Sarah is saying. So let's keep going. He then says, however, with the devaluing and disappearance of institutions, individuals were left to absorb the culture's anxiety. Anxiety then becomes a systemic phenomenon. By classifying anxiety as a personal issue rather than a systemic issue, we placed an enormous burden on the individual who then must modify their personal lives to alleviate the suffering that anxiety brings. So what Sayers is saying is basically, instead of the weight of all of the, the anxiousness and the, the, the concern and the problems and the what ifs, instead of that landing on the shoulders of an institution, the broad shoulders of a healthcare system or an education system or a political structure, as those institutions break down, that weight lands on you, it lands on me. And we become people who are pressed down by anxiety within a chronically anxious society who's just waiting for the, the, the trigger, just waiting for the thing that will break us. And most of us 
live in the midst of that reality. Now that's not new to 21st century North America. We have our own set of circumstances, we have our own stuff. But if you look across history, there are many times throughout history where the institutions have broken down, where the threats from the outside are so strong that the individual person was bearing the weight of the culture of anxiety. And one of those times takes us all the way back to 700 BC. So 700 years before Jesus came, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there was a weight of anxiety that was landing on them. And what they, like us, were longing for is what the Bible calls shalom, peace. A peace that is not just the absence of violence and war and struggle, but a, a peace that is the presence of the goodness and harmony and rightness, as things as they're meant to be. We long for that. If we take enough time to just pause and are willing to allow all that, we, uh, w- w- that runs through our mind, to, if we're willing to allow that for just a minute, to settle, what we find is that there's this deep longing for shalom. And that was true in Israel in 700 BC. There was this longing. And into that world, the prophet Isaiah wrote. And as he heard the voice of God and wrote down his words, there were promises that were spoken into that society. And just as our society, they landed in a mixed way with a sense of longing and a sense of desperation. So I want you to listen to those words. Uh, Jeff's doing double duty today, so he's going to come and read for us Isaiah 9, starting in verse 2 and through verse 7. Listen to the prophet. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire." For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thank you, Jeff. Would you pray with me? Jesus, our hearts rise with the prophet's words, the, the joy and the certainty that you will do what you've said you will do. And so God, would you fill in that sense of emotional rush with the sense of truth behind it, that we would be able to settle into the foundation of your word, which is truth. So God, guide us as we go through this uh, teaching today. Would you lead me that um, my words would not come from my flesh, that those that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but that my words would come from your spirit, and that the words from your spirit would remain, that they would, they would come into our hearts and find fertile soil and grow up and bear much fruit. And so speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, Isaiah 9 is probably a very familiar scripture to you. You hear it at least every Christmas. Uh, If you listen to Handel's Messiah, it's uh, been uh, probably goes a little sing-songy in your head as you hear uh, some of those words spoken. The the prophet and the prophecy 
uh, is maybe familiar to you, but the context maybe not as much. So let me just give you a little bit of background. Around 700 BC, the nation of Assyria was ascending and they were near the height of their power. And the, the nation of Assyria was a strong threat to anyone around them, and that was especially true for the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, the split kingdom at the time. Israel, the northern kingdom, was already aligned with Syria. So this is not Assyria, but Syria. So uh, uh, Israel and Syria were together standing against Assyria. But Judah, the southern kingdom, was, hadn't gone either direction. And so there was this wrestling that was happening with King Ahaz who was saying, do I, do I go with Assyria and just kind of uh, step into what is going to be the ultimate end anyway? And do I just kind of uh, surrender to them? Do I join with Syria and Israel? Or do we stand alone and trust that God will uh, come through, that God will do what we are uh, calling on him to do? And it's into that that Isaiah prophesies. And what he speaks is a promise that is not just for that moment, but I, I want to make the case it was a progressive promise that would unfold over centuries. So it was a progressive promise that promised ultimately true peace, not false or worldly peace. So a progressive promise that led to true peace and called them and us into being a non-anxious presence. So I want to talk about what it looks like for us to have a non-anxious Christmas this year. How do we become people of peace in the midst of all that's going on around us? So progressive promise, true peace, and a non-anxious Christmas. So if you're in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, what you'll see are some familiar uh, images to begin the prophecy. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. If you're familiar with John chapter 1, the beginning of uh, John's uh, gospel, he uses the same imagery that Jesus would come as the light of the world and that light would shine in the darkness. The darkness would not overcome it. Remember, in the ancient world, darkness was to be feared. Darkness was uh, not, it's not like you could flip on the switch, right? Like darkness was the time where all the bad stuff happened. You were in danger. Uh, there was all kinds of concern. So when darkness was upon them, they were nervous. But when the light dawned, everything was getting better. There was hope. There was a, a sense of, of peace that came with the, the dawn. And so uh, the imagery that Isaiah is using is that there were people who were in deep darkness but light came to them. And then he says, there are going to be three things that come as that light comes. First one is joy. You've multiplied the nation and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. So the first one is joy. And then there is uh, what we'll just call justice. The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. So uh, there's justice that's going to come to the oppressed that uh, as, as the light dawns, those who are being oppressed are going to be freed and there's going to be a justice in the world around us. And then finally, a, a, a geopolitical peace for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So the war will cease, and there will be a geopolitical peace. But right in the middle of that, he references another story, one that um, I know I've read over an awful lot. You've probably read over quite a bit. It's at the end of verse 4. Um, it, it says, For the yoke of his burden, the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, some of you Old Testament scholars know the Midianites and the battle with the Midianites, but I'll forgive you if you can't quite place that off the top of your head. Um, Midian was, was an oppressor of Israel. Interesting that Isaiah chose Midian because there were lots of oppressors of Israel over time, and this was not the greatest of them. But it was a fascinating story. Midian in Judges 7 and 8 were oppressing Israel, and God called a guy named Gideon. You probably know a little bit about Gideon. Um, so I'll just give you a brief uh, synopsis of the story. They're being oppressed by the Midianites, and um, the angel shows up and says to, uh, says to Gabriel, mighty warrior, man of valor. And Gideon goes, huh? <laughs> I, I don't know anybody like that. Like, he, he basically says to the angel, like, like that's not me. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a little guy. Like, I'm a mess. I, I don't... I, not ready to step into anything like that. And the angel says, no, 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 God's called you. 
And I, I won't, I'll spare you some of the details, but there's a back and forth, there's a little bit of interaction, there's some miracles and some signs in order for God to say, no, for real, I'm calling you, you're the one. And so Gideon swallows deeply and starts to call an army. So he has this big army, all these people have joined him, he's thinking, okay, I'm feeling it, I think I got this thing. And God, he comes before God and God says, nope, way too many people. Those people actually look like they can fight. Let's get rid of those people. Let's get the bad people in here, right? So he, he winnows down the army to 300 people. He does it in a way that should be embarrassing to everyone. You can read that on your own, but just like really bizarre stuff, right? So he gets 300 people who are now um, going to be Gideon's army, and they're going against the Midianites, the mighty Midianites, dramatically outnumbered, dramatically outgunned, like they, they, they don't have any chance at all. And if you remember the story in Judges 8, um, they... They blow trumpets, they break some pottery, and Midian wakes up and kills each other. Like, it's hysterical. It's like, this is crazy stuff. Like, they just kill each other, and Israel wins because they didn't do anything. Like, they blew trumpets and broke some pottery. Like, that's it. And yet, Israel is victorious. Why does he reference as in the day of Midian? Well, I think there's a couple things that, is, that Isaiah is trying to say to us. One of them is that the peace that you're longing for, you're not qualified for. So if you're coming to this and you feel like, I can't handle it, you're in good company. In fact, if you feel like my mess is just too much for this promise to even be possibly true, God's saying, that's exactly where I like to work. I like to work in the most extreme situations. I like to work when you are the most outnumbered, when you're the most helpless. In fact, at the point where you feel helpless, that's when I start to step in. Joy and justice and peace will come like it did in the day of Midian, by the strength of God, not by the strength of man. And so then Isaiah goes on to say, here's the way it'll come. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and King Ahaz has to be saying, I don't need a kid, I need a warrior, I need a, like a, an army, what are you talking about? A son is born, a child is given, like what are we talking about? His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now just think of those in terms of layers. Wonderful Counselor, he will come as one who knows where you need to go and how you need to get there. He will come as one when you feel helpless and lost who can direct you, but he will also come as one like all the best counselors do who will know you and make you feel known. You'll have a sense of, of, of him being with you, which is all well and good and feels nice and warm and fuzzy, but if that's all we have, that's not enough, right? But he says he's not just going to be the wonderful counselor. He's also going to be the mighty God. So he's also the one who is able to do everything at all times. No barrier is too much. No situation is too impossible. He's able to step into it. He's the wonderful counselor who can direct you. He knows you. But he's also the mighty God who can accomplish what he's doing. But he's also the everlasting father. He doesn't just work on your behalf and he doesn't just give you direction. He invites you into the family. He comes with you intimately and, and connects with you. He invites you in. And then, finally, as the culmination, he is the Prince of Peace. The one who brings peace, shalom, to his people. Not simply peace as standalone, but peace that comes from a God who knows the way, who knows you, who can accomplish everything he wants to do, and who has invited you into his family, that's why we have peace. Now, why is that important? Because this is a peace that isn't just taking us back to something. This is a peace that's leading us forward into something. This is a peace that is, uh, that's, that's not just fixing the situation. It's the peace that's deep inside of us that we carry along, along with us. So how does it work? Well, um, the, the nation of Israel, 700 BC, they wanted an external peace. They wanted a, a worldly peace. If you know the history, uh, that peace would not be lasting for them. 
that they would ultimately be exiled and they would be under various forms of oppression for hundreds of years. But 700 years later, if you turn to Luke chapter 2, the most familiar of the Christmas stories, I want to look at just one section. We're going to look at more of it next week, but I want to just look at one section of it. The word of God comes to the shepherds, strangely. And as the word comes to the shepherds, the word comes to the shepherds first through a singular angel. And that angel shows up to the shepherds in Luke 2, starting in verse 10. The angel says to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Now, that it's gone from a singular angelic voice, which was scary enough that he had to first say, don't be afraid, right? Um, so the singular angel is now joined by a multitude of angels amplifying the message. This is now the most important message that's being spoken at that moment. What is it? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. A message of peace comes into Bethlehem, to the shepherds around Bethlehem, at the time of Jesus' birth, that can't have anything to do with circumstances. Because what just happened? A baby was born off the beaten path over in a cave in the corner. That's it. I mean, nothing happened that is of worldly importance to anybody. Nobody even noticed. What happened couldn't have been circumstantial peace. But what happened was a true peace had come. And by a true peace, I don't mean a peace that is the absence of something, but now not just the presence of something, but the presence of a someone. By Jesus coming into the world, he brought, in some way that we wouldn't fully understand at that moment, he, he brought us peace. Peace comes with him. Jesus, throughout his ministry, would proclaim peace. We're going to look at a few of those in a little bit. But I want to fast forward to the end of his life and ministry. Jesus is with his disciples as he's preparing to be arrested and ultimately tried, convicted, crucified. And as he interacts with his disciples, he's trying to prepare them for what's to come. And he says, I'm not always going to be with you. I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to send one after me who will uh, be like a, a counselor, a, a comforter, uh, one who will come alongside of you, to come, come with you. And then he says this in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, but as I give, peace will remain with you. So this peace that I'm giving to you, it's going to stick. It's going to be there. Disciples had to have heard that. And then all of the events started to unfold. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is tried. Jesus is crucified. And the entire time they have to be thinking, what happened to peace? Like, think about it in light of Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus was the one who had become to them the wonderful counselor. Like, he looked in their eyes and knew them, and he knew which way to go. He was the one that they followed, right? For three years, they haven't made any decisions about where they're walking. They just followed Jesus. Like, for three years, they aren't making any decisions about what they're doing. They're just doing what Jesus did, right? For, for three years, he has been the counselor for them, and now he's gone. He was the mighty God. Like, there's a sick person? Jesus can fix that. You're hungry? Jesus makes bread. The storm's all around you and you think you're going to die? Jesus can stop the storm. No big deal. He's the one who everything is taken care of. He heals dead people. Are you kidding me? Like, he can take care of everything. And he had invited them into his family. He was the everlasting father who had said to them, like, if you love one another, you're part of this fellowship, this brotherhood, that we together have become the family of God. He, he said, as his, as his blood family came to the door and was challenging him, he said, no, 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 these aren't my family. This is my family. The ones who do the things I tell them to do and the ones who are with me and committed to me. He had been the wonderful counselor. He had been the mighty God. He had been the everlasting father. He had been the prince of peace. And now that's all gone. So those couple days 
or a level of hopelessness for them that's hard for us to even get our head around. Talk about a chronically anxious society. That group of disciples was incredibly anxious over the course of those days. But as Jesus resurrected and came back and began to talk to them, just in a few individual times before he ascended to the Father, there were certain things that he said and did. Let me read one of those interactions for you. This is John chapter 20. Um, remember when, uh, we, we talked about this last week, when the um, scriptures were written, there wasn't a computer or a word processor or whatever, so every time uh, repetition happens, it's kind of like uh, bold italics, all caps, right? It's like trying to get your attention. So listen to Jesus. He comes to them. Uh, this is uh, verse 19 of John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came, stood among them, and said, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The message of Jesus from beginning to end was a message of peace. It was one that was a restoration of all things as it should be. Not a peace that's absence of war, absence of violence, but a peace that is full of the right good things the way that God intended for it to be. It wasn't a circumstantial peace. Jesus did not conquer the Roman Empire. He did not fix the divisions within Judaism. He didn't even, uh, as far as we can tell, help the disciples to get along, right? Like, he didn't even fix his own little society. He just brought peace. From there, that circumstantial peace isn't obviously what he's talking about. But he's talking about a real peace, a biblical peace, what Pastor John Tyson calls a defiant peace. I love that because basically what he's saying is it, whatever's going on around us, however, however broken it is, however messed up the world is, there's a peace that we can have in defiance of the circumstances around us. It doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to be fixed. It doesn't have to be good. We can still have peace because he's the one who brings us peace. So when Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you, peace be with you, what he's saying is, don't worry about all the other stuff. I'll take care of that in good time, in my time. But for right now, you be people of peace. So fast forward 2,000 years. Because all that sounds great in theory, but you probably have a couple things between now and next weekend, right? Got some stuff that you still have to do? Got some... Got some um, I, I know we have different gatherings that are going to be happening. Some of you have family coming in. That means different things to different people. Some of those things are good. And other stuff too, right? Like, I'm just saying, it's real life, right? It's the way it goes. Like, um, sometimes the, the, the holidays are full of good things, and sometimes the holidays are challenging, and for most of us, it's a mixed bag, right? It's just the way it is. It's real life. How do we be people of peace in the midst of circumstances that are not peaceful? How do we be those who receive peace so that we can be people of peace? How do we have a non-anxious Christmas? Well, there's lots of ways to answer that question, but I wanna dwell on two for today. The first one is this. We must receive peace before we can give peace. We have to receive. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, makes a fascinating statement in the middle of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Jesus himself is our peace. And then he goes on to say that he has established peace. So peace is a work of Jesus done by Jesus. And if you fast forward just a couple chapters in Ephesians 4 verse 3, it says that we are to preserve the bond of peace. Already created, already done, our work is simply to preserve the peace that's already there. We are called to be people who receive the peace of God. In another letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, uh, in a famous chapter, verse, uh, chapter 5, the second half of chapter 5, he talks about something called the fruit of the Spirit. And among that list of the fruit of the Spirit is peace. W what Paul says is, the more we walk in the Spirit, the more that we are filled with the Spirit, the more that it's, it, it's less of us and more of him, what starts to happen is that we have more peace. It's really straightforward. It's, it's more spirit, more peace. And, and what's fascinating about uh, Galatians 5, we don't have time to go through the entire chapter, but uh, in Galatians 5, there's a list of things 
that are like the don't do stuff, right? Like, you know those lists where it's like, it, don't, don't be this kind of person, don't be this kind of person, don't be this kind of person. And we read it like that. Like, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. And then we read the, the fruit of the Spirit, and it's like, do all this stuff. Like, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, that, that's good stuff. But Paul doesn't say that. It's fascinating. He doesn't say, don't do the bad stuff. And he doesn't say, do the good stuff. There's two commands in the entire chapter. It's walk in the Spirit and stay in step with the Spirit. That's it. He doesn't tell you to work really hard at producing fruit. He knows you're Gideon's army. He knows that you don't have it in you. The goal is not that you and I would produce fruit. The goal is that we would stay in step with him. And as we stay in step with him, peace, as well as all of the other fruit of the Spirit, come to us. We receive them. The problem is, we're not good at receiving. Will Williman makes the statement, I love the statement, he says, um, we're better givers than receivers, but not because we're generous, but because we're proud and arrogant. We don't like to receive things because it puts us in a position of being powerless, and we like to be in a position that's powerful. If we are to be people of peace, we first have to receive it. And that comes with admitting that we can't do it on our own. Over the course of the last couple of weeks, as we've come to the communion table, we've tried to come in a way that is in line with these specific values of Advent. The first week, we said literally hundreds of millions of people all around the globe are going to gather at the table in various forms of mess, right? Like we're all just coming messy. And some people are messy on the outside. And some people have it all together on the outside but are messy on the inside. And those are the only two kinds of people, right? That's it. And we all come to the table together. And then last week we said, in the midst of our mess, we come to the table not hoping for what God is going to do in us, but hoping in Jesus as our only hope. Where we don't look to the outcome, we look to the person alone. Well, this morning, I want us to come as receivers. As people who are willing to admit, I can't do this on my own. As people who are willing to say, regardless of how much we can get our feet underneath us and how much we have going for us, and look, you guys look good this morning. I know you got a lot going for you, but it's not enough. Like, you, you can't do it on your own. And that's, that's the message of Gideon and the Midianites. That's the message of Jesus to the disciples. That's the message of Paul to the early church, and that's the message we need to receive today. We can't do it on our own. And so we come and we receive. And so I want to invite you to come to the table remembering that Jesus did all of the work. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And we were invited in. I know I told you there was going to be two responses and that's only one for those of you who are taking notes. So we'll get to the second one in a minute. But it's important for us to first come and receive. And so I want to invite us to come to the table. If you're serving communion, can I ask you to come from where you are and to take the elements around the room? Let me just give you a few words of instruction. There are going to be seven stations around the room. The one right here in the front center and the one back in the center are both gluten-free and touch-free stations. So you'll be served with tongs. You'll be able to receive that bread take the cup in an individual cup, and as you drink it, you can dispose of it in containers that are in the front pews and the front pews in that back half as well. Around the outside, there'll be five additional stations, and those are gluten-full and touch-heavy. There you go. Um, you'll be able to go and receive a piece of bread. You'll take that bread. Uh, you'll dip it into the cup and receive. In both places, words of blessing will be spoken over you, and you're going to be reminded of what's true that we are people who need to receive from God. He's done the work we receive from him. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited. Whatever your church background is and whatever your story is, the people who are invited to the table are those who are in need of grace and are, are following after Jesus, are doing everything that we can do to align our hearts with him. And so I want to invite you to come and receive. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, a couple things I want to say to you. First of all, we're really thrilled that you're here. Uh, we're, we're glad to be on this journey with you, 
But I want to ask you not to come to one of these stations. And it's not because you're not just as dependent as we are, just as reliant as we are. Uh, but it's because uh, in addition to stating that we're depending on him, we're also stating I'm depending on him and following him. I'm choosing to align my life with his. And if you're not yet in a place where you're ready to do that, then I would ask you not to make that statement. Um, there's going to be a lot of movement, so don't feel weird about that. You don't have to like, be self-conscious. Uh, people aren't going to be paying attention. But there will be some prayers on the screen that will maybe help you process your heart. The first one just says, Jesus, I want to know more. <laughs> like, show me yourself. I don't understand. I'm not there yet. But I, really, I, I want to know. Would you show me? It's a great prayer to pray. The second one is a prayer that says, Jesus, I'm ready. I don't know what that means. I know I'm, uh, uh, there's only a little bit that I do know. But what I know is enough for me to be ready to follow you. And if you pray that prayer, not necessarily those words, but words like that, I want to invite you, if you want to go to this, one of these stations, please do that. But would you also tell somebody that you prayed that prayer? Because um, it feels good on Sunday, but by Tuesday, you're going to need some support, because we all do. And, by the way, we're going to need you on Tuesday, too. And so we need to be a part of one another's journey, and that's why God has called us as community and so if you make that decision to pursue after him, we want to be part of that journey with you. The last thing I want to say is that if you're a follower of Jesus, but there's a portion of your life that you've kind of roped off to him, like, Jesus, you can have the 99%, but this 1% over here, this belongs to me. If that's where you are, uh, and I'm not saying that you're, you find sin in your life, that would be all of us. I'm not saying that you struggle, that would be all of us. I'm saying if there's an area that you said, Jesus, you're not welcome over here, I would also ask you not to go to one of these stations. And the reason is, this is the most important time for you to be able to bring that 1% to Jesus. To, to bring it to him and just ask the simple question, Jesus, why is it I can trust you with 99% but not this 1%? Like, what's going on in my heart? What is it that stops me from giving completely into who you are, where you're leading? And so if that's where you're at, I would ask you to take this time to bring that before him. The invitation is for dependent people who are in need to come and receive. And so I want to invite you to do that. I'm going to pray over us, and then as you're ready, I'm going to ask you to come. Jesus, we can't do this on our own, even though we pretend really well. We need peace, and we need a peace that we can't generate. And so God, would you meet us at the table? And give to us what we need. May we be receivers today. Humble enough to know that we need what you have. And so God, would you bring peace to us that we could be your vessels of peace in the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're ready, please come to the table.
become a non-anxious presence? Well, the first thing we have to do is receive. Because we can't give away what we don't have. We can't be peace to people until we receive the peace of God. And so we first have to receive. But it doesn't end there. We're then called to be people who proclaim, 
who take the peace that's in us and speak it into the people in the world around us. Jesus did this over and over again as part of his ministry. I just want to tell you two quick stories. In uh, Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter chapter 8, there are two encounters that Jesus had with women that are back-to-back, and they're parallel in a lot of different ways, more time than we have to go into today. But the first one is a, a woman that Jesus encounters when he's at Simon the Pharisee's house for dinner. He's been invited over to dinner. The Pharisees were uh, rule-following people, very uh, highly regarded within Jewish society, and Jesus was over for dinner. And this woman came, and she was a woman of ill repute, as they say. She had had a very difficult background, and she was in a cycle of sin that is hard for some of us to even get our heads fully around. And in the midst of her brokenness, she comes to Jesus, and she comes to Jesus with this box full of the most expensive perfume, bought with money that clearly the Pharisees are thinking is money ill-gained, right? Money that shouldn't have been gained at all. And yet she brings this, this perfume. She breaks the box, and she pours it all over Jesus' feet as she's weeping over Jesus. And then she takes her hair down, an intimate act that would have been saved in most instances only for the bedroom. She takes her hair down and she wipes Jesus' feet with him. The interaction that Jesus has both with her and with Simon is fascinating. We don't have time for it. But at the end of that story, Jesus says to her, woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He spoke peace, not circumstantial peace. She was still a mess. She was still in the midst of a cycle that she had to figure out her way out of. But he spoke peace over her woman. Go in peace. Next chapter, another woman, totally different story. This is an older woman who has uh, experienced bleeding throughout her life. Luke tells us that Her bleeding would have come in a way that would have made her ceremonially unclean, so she would have gone uh, likely years, maybe decades, without real touch, because touch would have made the person that she's touching unclean. She's spent, Luke tells us, uh, all of her life savings trying to get this thing fixed. Nothing works. And Jesus is going by, and he has a crowd of people around him, and she tries to kind of inch her way over to Jesus. And she touches the hem of his garment, the very bottom of his robe. And as she touches the robe, she feels herself healed. She know, like it happened in an instant. And there has to be this, this mix of, of elation, like, like finally, finally. And the fear that comes from the fact that I just touched the rabbi in my uncleanness. And so she had to very quickly be kind of slinking away. And Jesus stops and he said, who touched me? And the disciples are like, are you serious? Like, there's hundreds of people. Like, what are you talking about? Who touched me? And Jesus says, no, no, no. I I felt the power go out of me. And Luke doesn't give us all the details, but I picture the woman coming over and kneeling down with her head down because she knows what she's done has has taken the rabbi from a, a state where he's able to do ministry and he's able to do all that he's called to do to a state where now he's going to have to be quarantined. He's going into a, a process where he needs to uh, get into a ritual cleansing. And so she comes with her head down and she says, it was me, I did it. And I picture Jesus taking her head, both hands, and turning her face up to him. And he says to her almost the exact same thing, woman, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Shalom. Go with all things that were wrong being made right. Jesus is a proclaimer of peace in two of the most incredibly difficult situations. I mean, here's a a cycle of sin that is so great, it's tough for us to get our head around. Here's a disease, sickness that seems impossible where everything has been done. And yet, Jesus proclaims peace into those things. And I believe that he calls us to do the same thing, to receive the peace and then to proclaim the peace. Now, will he always fix 
the situation. That cycle, that brokenness, will he fix it? That's on him, right? We don't know. I don't know. There's times where I've had the privilege of proclaiming peace and the cycle's changed. There's lots of times I've had the privilege of proclaiming peace and the cycle stays exactly as it is. But that's not my job. I'm called to be a proclaimer of peace. Will Jesus heal? Sometimes. Not always. And I can't tell you why or why not. That's not my job. I'm called to proclaim peace. But see, here's the thing. For a lot of us, the situations that are impossible, the situations that are really, really broken, we we tend to insulate ourselves from. So we become receivers of peace. We receive the peace, but then we kind of become insulated by peace, right? We hang out with other people with peace. And we make sure that everything around us is peaceful. And we do as best we can to make sure that everything is full of peace. But Jesus doesn't call us to be people who simply receive peace. He calls us to be people who proclaim peace. Who go into broken places and dark places. And and places that seem impossible. And proclaim peace. And then trust him to do what he's going to do. Which may be leading people out of the mess. Or it may be like Israel hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later still not fully understanding what that peace meant. And, and that's not our job. Our job is to receive peace and to proclaim peace. And so as we respond, I want to ask you to consider a couple different things. First one is this. Some of you, some of us, came to these stations knowing that we were dependent, knowing that we were in need, knowing that we needed to receive. But at best, it was an act of faith, and it was probably really little faith. Because if we're keeping our head above water, it's barely. We feel the anxiety and the depression and the weight and the challenge and the impossible situations, and we just feel it. And and until we're able to receive fully the peace of Jesus... We're not going to be able to fully proclaim the peace of Jesus. But here's what I know for sure. I don't know how he does it, and I don't know what his methods always are, but I know that the Prince of Peace desires to give peace. I know that the heart of God is to give peace to his people. And so it may be that you need to come from wherever you are and to say to someone, would you pray that over me? Would you just be, I, I can't even maybe get the words out but I need somebody to pray that over me. And if that's where you are, I want to encourage you to respond in that way. Um, This side of the altar rail is always open for those who want to be prayed with, that you can have people come around you. And if you're in that place where it's hard to even keep your head up, you you need someone to speak that over you. And so I want to encourage you to, to do that. This side of the altar is just a place where you can be on your own to meet with God. And you're welcome to do that, but don't discount the power of another brother or sister speaking that word over you. So that's one area of response. The other area is for those of you who, when you're honest, would say, I'm insulated with peace and I kind of like it that way. Like there's all these people of peace all around me and all those other situations, they're messy and difficult and I honestly am not sure that God has a whole lot of uh, wisdom for those. I'm not sure that there's a lot of solutions out there. So I'm just gonna kind of stick with me. And if that's where you are, I want to encourage you to, at the very least, in your pew or up here, talk to someone, say those words out loud, and say, I I need to be a proclaimer of peace. Because it may not be this week, it may be next month, it may be in a couple months, but you need somebody who's going to be able to walk with you and say, how's that going? What's that process been like? Because you may feel it right now, but you're not going to feel it a week from now. And you need somebody who's going to be able to walk with you. Saying those words out loud is is so powerful. And to be prayed for, to say, I I want to be a vessel of peace. There could be another number of ways that you respond, but at least those two I want to encourage you to consider. Are you receiving the peace of God and are you proclaiming the peace of God? So I just want to take a minute in silence to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And then we're going to stand. The team will lead us and we'll respond. And if God's calling you to respond in a specific way, I want to invite you to do that. So would you just kind of settle your hearts? Take a deep breath right where you are. Close your eyes. Jesus, as best we can, 
we center our busy hearts, our active minds on you. Holy Spirit, the one who is called peace, peace I leave with you. Would you speak peace into our hearts? Spirit, we give you space right now. Would you speak to us? Jesus, we praise you that when you entered the world, the declaration could be made that peace has come to us because you have entered our lives. And so God, help us to receive that truth. Bring our hearts from where they are to where yours longs for us to be. Meet us. Thank you that you love us right where we are. Thank you that our hope is in you alone. And now, God, may our peace come from you, that we would receive what you have so that we would give that peace to the world around us. And so meet us by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.